the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the second hour of the program. Jimmy Sangenberger in for Stefan Tubbs here on News Talk 710-KNUS. Coming up in a bit, we will be joined by my good friend Jeff Crump, veteran for decades of the music business, including at one point a vice president at Live Nation. We're going to get insights on the Ticketmaster stuff and you know, now Congress going to dig into it. The Department of Justice is digging into it. All in the wake of Taylor Swift fans getting upset, understandably, because of the games that Ticketmaster seems to be playing, or maybe it's just an overload of the system and they thought they could do more. Who knows? But who better to talk about the scalping that goes on and the reselling of tickets and the impacts on Ticketmaster and all that than Jeff Crump, who can really give us a lot of insights as having been the tour manager for Aerosmith for five years and other major acts. Because the wealth of knowledge he brings from the music business is going to be very insightful in this conversation. But first, we teed this up a little bit earlier on in the show. Just was yesterday, today, President Biden said about this rail strike that seems on the horizon, well, he's not directly engaged in it. Can you talk about what the holdup is, Mr. President? I can't because it's the middle of the negotiations still. But, uh, Have my, you been in touch with involved? parties again? My team has been in touch with all the parties in rooms with the parties. And uh, I have... Uh, I, I have not directly engaged yet because they're, they're still talking. I have not directly engaged yet because they're still talking. Now, that's interesting because a couple days before, Corrine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, said this. The president is indeed involved directly, uh, but I, I don't want to get into details at this time, but he has been involved. He remains focused, again, on protecting America's families. We have to avoid uh, a rail shutdown. Hmm. So is the president directly involved or isn't he? Who the heck is telling the truth on that one? This is really biting the Biden administration in the butt right now because we are coming upon Christmas time. Here are some key points as laid out by CNBC. Four rail unions have aligned on a potential national strike date of December 9th with the signal signalmen's union agreeing to move back its date in coordination with other unions that rejected the labor deal, a deal that the Biden administration was working to get both sides to agree to. Railroads begin preparing for a strike seven days ahead of that date, meaning it's not something that's just going to happen on December 9th. They will start shutting certain the transportation using rail of certain products, sensitive ones, down earlier. So December 2nd is really when this thing will get off the ground. 
Chemicals take priority in rail strike preps with transport of this sensitive cargo stopped 96 hours before a strike. The railroad industry expects a damage to the economy of $2 billion per day, while other industry groups have warned of a direct hit to GDP and an inflationary increase. Now, this is after the election that this is happening. Go figure. Well, back in September, the Biden administration reached a deal at least to punt the issue, to punt a strike. And Marty Walsh, the labor secretary, went on TV and he was all enthused. Oh, look at what we managed to dodge as far as a big, massive bullet to the economy. What was at stake here? Uh, the, the supply chain uh, working about the president trying to bring down global uh, inflation pressures, uh, domestic inflation pressures. Uh, and, and understanding that if, if this strike happened tonight, which would have been tonight at 12 o'clock, it would have devastating impacts on the American economy. That was back in September. Now, as far as the economic impacts, well, here is what the Transportation Secretary, Marty Walsh's colleague over transportation, Pete Buttigieg, said on News Nation this week. Will the administration support the rail workers if they strike? Well, look, our goal right now is to make sure that doesn't happen. And we're urging the parties to get to the table and to do whatever it takes to prevent a shutdown. Uh, a shutdown is a scenario that is not acceptable. We got through the worst of the days in terms of the shipping backlogs. We've made headway on trucking. Uh, but if we don't have a healthy, functioning, strong rail system... I mean, can the American economy deal with it if it happens? It would not be good. I mean... Catastrophic. We don't have enough trucks or barges or ships in this country to make up for the rail network. It's, it's a really important part of our economy. That is crucial, and that is the truth. I've got more sound that we will play here in a bit. But I want to bring on the man behind the glass for both Stefan Tubbs' show and my show, which runs 6 to 9 every Saturday morning, known as the Jimmy Sangenberger Show, Leroy Doffenbaugh. Brother, welcome. Thank you, Jimmy. You were 35 years in the trucking industry as a trucker. You were telling me you logged three and a half million miles. This is before in your previous life, before getting into radio production and so forth. First of all, kudos to you. Talk about an achievement. Thank you. I mean, what is that? Like an average of, I, I'm not good at math, something like 100,000 miles a year? Yeah, you know, I mean, after a while, you got to think about it. I drive, you know, on a normal about 750 miles a day. Wow. That's quite something. So you really know, as well as anybody can, about how supply chains work in this country, particularly starting in the ports, going to rail, going to trucks. Can you just sort of lay that out for us before we get to the extent of the implications if there is a rail strike? It's kind of like this. It's like heavy freight and such as coal, lumber, and other heavy freight going long distances usually take a train and then a combination of trucks and also ships. you got to think about it. Everything that we get from overseas comes on a ship, goes to some port, gets on a train, then goes to other ports and in interior ports like you know rail, rail stations, of course. And then we have to go to those rail stations, pick them up by truck, and then we take them to the shippers and, you know, the receivers. So if there's any type of uh, break in that cog, then our shipping and just in itself, you know, logistics just has a break in the wall, you know. 
So it, it really is that pivotal link in the supply chain right here in the country. We are not talking in this case about what happens in China or Taiwan or in Latin America or something. We're talking about all right here in the United States. Yeah, within ourselves, yes. So w- when you look at the supply chain connections then, it's really that, that the rail is the midway link because so much goes, so many products that come in from overseas, then spread out. So then the truckers can take products and move them to where they need to go. Exactly. I mean, coal is number one. I mean, if you ever see a train, you you notice that they have like hundreds of, of cars with coal sticking right out of the top of it. So that was like number one of how we're moving our coal, you know. And so what are the real implications of this, Leroy? I mean, if they do go on strike... On December 9th, just before Christmas, when you're trying to get presents all around, all sorts of products, goodies, and what have you, what are the implications here if this goes down? Well, you know, I think on a personal note, you got to think that about what, about maybe eight months ago, we were having issues with the shipping yards and containers not making it to America, and we were having that issue. But the thing is, is there's so many containers at a rail rail place already that we can ship i don't think that there would be a bad you know any type of uh stoppage you know during the christmas but i think in about maybe three four months down the road we're already starting to empty the ones that we have that are in storage already and then next thing you know we don't have nothing coming in because the ship's going to be stuck out in the harbors so what you're saying is that we could sort of be saved by the backlogs that happened previously frustrating people earlier in the year it just depends on how quick they get this over with So uh, in terms of Christmas, looks from your experience like we should be, for the most part, in pretty good shape. I believe so. You know, I mean, other than it, other than cost, because, I mean, everything is going up. Right. And then also the thing about them saying that we're running out of diesel, you know, and it's like trains run on diesel. (laughs) So, you know, we're in a bad spot right now. Other than I don't think I think that we have enough reserve. And I and this is just personal opinion on that. That I believe that it is, uh, we have enough in personal reserve, and then we also have the means of getting all of our freight out as long as the rail strike doesn't, if they do go to strike, that it doesn't last that long. Hmm. So when we hear talk about the economic damage, that's not false. It's true. It just may be able to happen earlier in the new year as opposed to Christmas time. But either way, Leroy, it's post election. They punted it from back in September and said, okay, don't strike now, clearly, so the Biden administration could get past the election, and then bada-boom, bada-bing, here we are in December. You know, all, all, all along, you know, I can just say that it might be just a, one of those scares. Hey, let's get through the election. You know, it might be a scare. And let's just say that we're going to do this. Now, for, for folks who don't know, Congress can intervene. In fact, in 1991, that is what Congress did when there was another rail strike situation going on, because Congress has power under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution for regulating international trade or it, it, rather interstate trade. It's called interstate commerce. And that gives Congress the authority. They've been able to exercise it in the past. But Leroy, I'm sick and tired of anything being punted to Congress under the hope that Congress is going to just resolve it. And then we get into some emergency situation. And then Congress ends up making some sort of tentative deal that punts. At least that's the way we do it now. 1991, I think, was a different story. They permanently resolved it. I don't know that Congress can get anything done right now. 
thing is, you can only hope that each person has some type of experience with, like, transportation or any type of thing that they are actually arguing about. You know, if they had the knowledge and some experience with it, then I think they would, wouldn't try to punt it during this time. You well, know, I, I heard a, a union president, one of the union presidents, say that they hope Congress will resolve it. And if the unions are just thinking, well, OK, we'll just basically put this on Congress's lap. I mean, that's just not the right way to do business in general. I don't believe so. Didn't Congress say that it's about the United States of America and not, well, hey, it's sure. the, not the Congress? So let me ask you, uh, Leroy, one, one more sort of question. I mean, here we're talking about the unions going on strike. Uh, when you were in the transportation industry 35 years, what were your thoughts on a union? Did you ever join a union? Why not it or why so? You know, I stayed away from unions and I was actually an owner operator. I believed I could make more money that way and I had more control of what freight I was moving. Um, I wasn't told what to do, when to do it. Um, a lot of times you don't want to move some freight because uh, maybe ignorance of it and stuff like that and i'm saying that i might have not have been knowledgeable about some of the stuff that i've been moving if i don't know it why move it and then then there's the concern though if there is a strike in uh, from a union and then the implications and what that does to all across the country i mean i remember having a teacher back when i was in high school he was not a conservative not a republican registered unaffiliated but a really brilliant guy and i remember him saying he was not part of the teachers union because he left a corporate law career that was very successful for him so he felt he could defend deal with the, the any legal issues that might come up if they did but he said if ever there was a strike I expect you to be here in class on the school day. There was a strike in Cherry Creek School District, was it a year or two ago? And I, a couple of years ago, maybe two or three years ago, and I remember asking the teacher, and he was like, yeah, students actually came in. It wasn't required. It was okay that they didn't, but he was there in school, and the students still came in, and they were able to get at least some sort of a education. I really appreciated that because there was concern for the purpose of what they're doing in schools, which was education. In this case, when we're talking Christmas, if there were to be implications from Christmas or anything else, it's dramatic what could happen if you do have this strike, Leroy. It is scary, you know, and a lot of the big companies that own like about 5,000, 6,000 trucks, you know, are they the ones that are going to suffer from it and are our owner operators going to suffer? Like the reason why I was an owner operator was because of money. And not only that, I can always move. Uh, a few years back when we were getting ready to say the strike for the truckers, I wasn't involved in that because I can move stuff. I don't have nobody telling me what to do. Hmm. Leroy, brother, I appreciate you taking a few minutes to offer your thoughts from your wealth of experience. And you always do a great job producing here on the Stefan Tubbs Show and my show. So we got to close the night and we got to start tomorrow morning dark and early. So when we leave and when we get here, it's dark, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's <laughs> going to be so much fun, though, Jimmy. All right. Looking forward to it. Leroy Dolphin, bye, everybody. The man behind the glass. Joining us right here on 710 KNUS, a little bit more of Pete Buttigieg, because we have the the administration that claims to be the most pro-union administration. Well, here's Leland Vittert of News Nation pressing Buttigieg on that question. If push comes to shove and the union strike, will the administration stand with the unions? So I don't want to get into a scenario over battle lines that haven't fully been drawn yet. But what I will say is that you know, we certainly believe in collective bargaining. We believe in the hard-won tentative agreement that was reached at the table. It involved 
the rail companies moving quite a bit, including a major increase in pay. Uh, but it also involved the unions getting concessions uh, and giving up a lot. But what the unions gained was a little more recognition for quality of life issues, for uh, the difficulty of getting even unpaid sick days for uh, rail career professionals who are on call all the time. The tentative agreement was one that, that everybody moved in order to get done. The railroad companies and the That's unions. the September agreement. I think it was a good agreement. Uh, but if there are other adjustments that need to happen, the most important thing uh, as we get through these votes, and the majority of the unions have voted yes, but some of them have voted no, as we get into these next few weeks, we've got to get to a solution that does not mm. subject the American economy to the threat of a shutdown. So what is the Biden administration going to do? Real quick, one more clip. This is Phil Wegman, reporter at Real Clear Politics over on the Fox News Channel. Well, it wasn't just that 60 Minutes interview that Vince noted correctly. It was also the victory lap that President Biden took in the Rose Garden. Uh, he played a personal role in the negotiations between these unions and railroad companies. He stepped in at the 11th hour, and he said that both sides had reached a pretty great deal. Uh, unfortunately, one of the largest uh, labor unions, they disagree. And so now the prospect that faces the president is, does he go back to the railroads and ask them to acquiesce? a little bit more, or uh, does the most pro- union uh, president in history, something the president likes to refer to himself as, does he turn the screws on labor and try to break this strike before it begins? Well, first we need to understand whether or not he's directly engaged in the union talks, I assume. But yeah, that's the question. What is he going to do? Is he going to support crushing the American economy, potentially, or is he going to align with the unions because he is the union president? I don't know. Time will tell real quick. Speaking of strikes, CBS News headline, Amazon workers in the U.S. and 30 other countries plan Black Friday protests. So today there were Amazon workers and labor activists in roughly 30 countries, including the U.S., who walked off the job and staged other protests on Friday to demand better pay and working conditions. Black Friday of all days. Hmm. Just a little note that that happened today. Not sure how much of an impact that will actually really make, but it is notable that the unions are now starting to push more and more in this country and in other parts of the globe, but particularly in this country. A Amazon warehouse was unionized for the very first time in Staten Island, New York, I think earlier this year. For the first time, there was a Starbucks that was unionized. Going to be interesting to see what happens as it spreads. But I do have concerns about the growth of unions, especially if workers are forced to join unions. We'll keep talking about this as well. I'm sure on KNUS and certainly on my show. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger in for Stefan Tubbs today. We'll take a break on the other side. Music industry veteran Jeff Crump joins us on the Ticketmaster saga and with details and insights you won't hear anywhere else. Keep it right here. News Talk 710 KNUS. How nice is this? Jimmy Sangenberger in for Stefan Tubbs, and it's Eric Clapton from his 2018 album, Happy Xmas, an original tune, I think. It's Christmas. Eric Clapton bringing us back as we get into the Christmas spirit now, post-Thanksgiving. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving now. Merry Christmas to you. 
Once again, Jimmy Sangenberger in for Stefan Tubbs. A great album, by the way. Happy Xmas, Eric Clapton. As we continue News Talk 710 KNUS, of course, Eric Clapton, one of those great music legends. I know Stefan's a big Clapton fan and with good reason. Someone who has worked with Eric Clapton in the past, along with so many other musicians in all different capacities of the music business, is my good friend Jeff Crump, who lives right here in Denver, Colorado, and he joins me now to talk about this craziness known as Ticketmaster. Happy belated Thanksgiving, my friend, and welcome. Thank you, Jimmy. Same to you and uh, everybody at Salem. Appreciate it. And I, I do have to just note for our listeners, longtime listeners to my show will know Jeff Crump as the Crump in a feature we've consistently called over the years, Music with Crump. And it's good to have you. So I want to just start by filling folks in who may not be familiar with you, Jeff, as to the extensive background you have for many decades in the music business. I think you've done all the different things there is to do outside of performing. Um, I didn't do production, but that, that that's right. a whole other key to it. Sure. But I started uh, at the University of Colorado in the program council and st- was one of the first students up there to do um, concerts and stuff. So um, I know one of the first concerts I actually did as a promoter, venue operator, whatever, up there was Neil Young, and we had... Um, counterfeit tickets got in and so kids that had legitimate tickets couldn't get in counterfeit tickets got in the fire department came and turned fire hoses on the kids my first encounter with barry Fay, and he looks at me and he goes i don't know what they feed you guys in boulder that has you so effed up and that was my first conversation with barry Fay. um later on years later i both worked for barry Fay for 10 years and i also tour managed neil young um, so it's kind of a big circle there. <laughs> yeah, that, that is great. You were with Faylight for about 10 years, right? And, right, right. And what was your role when you were there for the promotion company? I was a promoter. There was Barry, Chuck Morris, Carol Walden, and I were the promoters. Um, Carol and I did everything outside of Colorado. There were some times where we would work on some of the stadium shows here, but all of my stuff was national tours with Parliament Funkadelic and Bootsy's Rubber Band or Stevie Nicks. We did a lot of Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings dates all over the country. So um, I might go from Hawaii to Jamaica in, in the course of a year working on shows and booking the venue, booking the talent, ordering the tickets, buying the advertising monitoring ticket sales and being on the day's show to pay all the bills, including the band. Now, a lot of this will come up in a moment when we talk about Ticketmaster. But before we get to that, after you worked for Barry Fay, you were tour manager for various musicians and acts. You talked about Neil Young. You tour managed Aerosmith for five years. You managed uh, Run DMC and Public Enemy. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about that aspect of your work. Well, um, as you know, there's three um, legs to the stool that holds up a concert and makes makes it all operate. There's obviously the talent, and I represented talent um, as they're either tour accountant or tour manager, hiring and firing the road crews and sound and light companies and dealing with the promoters all over the world. Then there's the promoter that takes the risk um, and 
makes a little bit of money if it's successful and loses a lot of money if it's not. Um, and then there's the venue, the building. And then any of those times, uh, as far as a ticket contract, the artists usually don't have a direct connection um, with a ticket company because it's usually a promoter or the venue that does. So, But all three of those have to come together to work to make a concert or a tour happen. And so and when you were in the tour manager, that meant that you were responsible for all the books, the different aspects of, of the act themselves, and having to work with the the promoter and the venue, which really puts you heavily involved in what actually ends up happening with a company like a Ticketmaster, right? Right. The day of the show is when all the bills pretty much get paid, and you have all the ticket revenues that have come in by a ticket company. Um, Denver's a little unique in that, like Red Rocks, where I also was one part of the management team at Red Rocks for several years, um, they don't have a, a contract with Ticketmaster or anybody else. The promoter is free to work with whatever ticket company they want to. Um, so there was, I mean, Nirvana at one point, um, no, it wasn't Nirvana, I forget who it was, but one of the grunge bands from San Francisco or Seattle didn't want to play a building that had Ticketmaster, and so Red Rocks was one of four shows they played that year. Hmm. And, and, and Eddie Better ended up spending the night in, in the dressing room at Red Rocks and caught a cold because it's so damp and cool in there. <laughs> so, and you, by the way, you ran uh, Red Rocks in other Denver venues over several years, right? I'm not me personally, but I, mean, I was involved, but there was a team of people. But, yeah, I was the marketing director for Denver Theaters and Arenas and oversaw the contracts and um, sometimes worked directly with the bands, definitely worked with some of the promoters. Um, and this is also after I'd worked for Barry. I would spend 10 years with Barry. So it's – I've done all three of the, of the stools of a – you know, the legs of a stool that holds up doing a concert. It's something else that you did, and then we'll get to the topic at hand again. We're talking with longtime music industry veteran Jeff Crump. Is you were a vice president for Live Nation for several years, particularly overseeing something called Instant Live, right? Correct. I, um, this we would take a recording engineer and equipment on the road and record, multi-track record the live concert. Um, and be able to burn CDs so that people attending the concert could, 10 minutes after the show is over, they could pick up uh, a CD, often three or four CD set, um, of the concert they just saw. And, uh, of course, one of the bands that you worked with the most for that was the best band in history, the Allman Brothers Band. We found that doing jam <laughs> bands was much more um, beneficial than doing a band that played the exact same set every night, note for note. That you could put out one concert and sell them at every show, and it'd be the same, down to the second. But bands that are more spontaneous, bands like Fish, Almond Brothers, uh, Phil Lesh was the bass player for Grateful Dead. We worked with him. Um, you never know quite what they're going to do, as far as what material they're going to do or what solos they're going to do. So uh, every show's different. So there were definitely Almond Brothers fans that mm -hmm. wanted every concert recurring of every concert they did on a tour and, and so what hundreds of almond brothers concerts you were involved with probably more than that 
I'm so je- I just every time I talk to you, especially about the Allman Brothers, I'm so jealous. You knew Greg, you knew them all. You knew Stevie Ray Vaughan. I mean, we could go on and on in that direction. But with that very fun context built up with you, Jeff Crump, we find ourselves now talking about the music industry as it is today, and specifically the biggest name, arguably, in music today, Taylor Swift, who just not this week, but last week, had a big issue come up when Ticketmaster was getting their sales going for her big tour, where she added 25 more shows. I think they're looking at, I think it's 52 at this point. 2.4 million tickets. I mean, my mind is blowing at that number as at least being possible for tickets sold. And this was now last Thursday of last week. Uh, then we now have Congress getting involved in, in, in all this because of the Ticketmaster flub. What's going on here as you look at it? Well, it's definitely overwhelmed the system. Um, and one thing to know about hard tickets versus computer tickets, when there's hard tickets, somebody has to take them around and put them in the record stores or your retailers that are going to be selling the tickets. Computer ones, it's all online, and it's open to anybody in the United States. So just because you're in Denver, you could still go online to find a way to buy a ticket for the Boston show. So it is complicated, and it was overwhelming that um, that many tickets went on sale at the same time. And between the true fans that wanted the tickets and the ticket brokers, or I call them scalpers, um, a Taylor Swift ticket would be marked up quite a bit by the scalper who contributes nothing to the event. Um, and there's, they don't add anything to the value of the ticket. They just make a profit because there's a bottleneck and they can get their hands on the tickets where uh, oftentimes the, com- the consumer can't. So you find out these shows are sold out within two minutes and you've been on hold, you know, a ticket master for an hour and you're not going to get a ticket. So that's, it. that's number one, irritating to the fan that doesn't get a ticket, but then you can find them listed online for three times the face value. And that's bothered... So the artist is in a tough spot because they want their tickets to be affordable for the fan. But if a scalper buys them and then turns around and sells them for a couple hundred bucks, it defeats the purpose. And the artist isn't getting the money. And the fan doesn't have that much money, or some do. But um, uh, so, so it is a complicated situation. And Eagles looked at it um, and said, hey, if our tickets are worth 150 or 200 bucks, Heck with the scalpers, we'll charge 200 bucks. At least it's us making the money. But then the Eagles audience is a lot different than a Taylor Swift audience. The genre of music is different. The age is different. The gender leans obviously way much more heavily towards females in the Taylor Swift fans than uh, the Eagles fans. Well, I, I would say, though, I mean, like my, I was talking to my sister. She and a group of friends were able to get tickets off a of Ticketmaster, and it involved a lot of waiting, of course, and her ticket was uh, more than 200 bucks from Ticketmaster. I mean, it's so Taylor Swift isn't charging, if you're getting decent seats, is certainly charging a, a good amount still. But when we look at the scalping issue, Jeff, how has that really changed over time? It seems like it's got to be worse since we have all these Internet-based electronic tickets, worse than when, say, you were involved in tour managing or promotion. Yeah, funny thing. Ticketmaster's first show in Los Angeles, I promoted. It was the US Festival in 1983. Wow. And Ticketmaster didn't have the computer set up to do 
computerized tickets. So their first show in L.A. was hard tickets. Mm. It was kind of ironic since they're, you know, they really pioneered the, um, uh, before Ticketmaster, there was Ticketron and there was lost inventory of blank tickets. So they were really kind of a sloppily run uh, ticket company. So it's always whoever controls the tickets, you know, controls the money. That's where all the revenues come from to pay the band. Now, with Taylor Swift, she's different than a lot of artists. She's taken almost everything in-house. There's only one promoter, and his name is Louis Messina. He used to be the head of Pace Concerts in Houston. And he and his son, great guy, he and his son promote all of the Taylor Swift shows. So she only has to deal with one promoter rather than a different promoter every show. Um, so it's, you know, so that's, there's one promoter, there's one ad agency that does all of her advertising, there's one merchandise company, um, and she likes bringing it all in-house, which is different than most artists. So th then when we get into a situation like this now, I mean, okay, so Taylor Swift has consolidated who she's working with and so forth from a promotion standpoint, and then you got the Ticketmaster mess. I mean, is it worse today than it was in terms of scalping back in the day? Yes. For one thing, tickets back in the day, when I started promoting shows, they were six or eight bucks. And you'd go to your local record store, give them a stack of 100 or 200 tickets to sell, and on the day of the show, you had runners that would go around and pick up all the money in the tickets in the cigar box, and you'd come back and you'd pay all the bills, and if there was cash left at the bottom of the cigar box, you made money. If there wasn't, you lost money. I and mean, that's about how primitive it was in the late 60s and early 70s. So, yes, it's a lot more sophisticated. It's a lot more complicated. Um you know, and it's, and it's, I don't, I don't blame anybody at Ticketmaster for the over, um, for the way it was overwhelmed. They thought they had a capacity big enough to handle it, and their system didn't. Their system crashed. So what we have here now is not just Taylor Swift fans who are all upset over what happened, and understandably so. Taylor Swift did take about a day before she finally put out a statement and, you know, wasn't fully satisfying to fans, but at least she said something. She talked about how excruciating it was to see her fans go through this. Excruciating was the word. Now, Live Nation and Ticketmaster merged in 2010, and, and Ticketmaster became a subsidiary of Live Nation. And so now you have, and this is from a week ago, and it's gotten more um, pronounced, but this clip that I'm going to play is from a week ago of Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota talking about Congress getting involved. In 2010, Live Nation and Ticketmaster were allowed to merge. They, mm -hmm. The combined company now has 70% of ticket sales. So in truth, there's no other choice. And that's what's going on. There is a monopoly. They also have quickly and quietly bought so many venues and arenas, so it is a vertical integration. That's why we are pushing the Justice Department to look at this and to look back at that consent decree of which they have power over that consent decree. I talked to Senator Mike Lee last night. We chair the committee on antitrust. We are going to go ahead with a hearing on Ticketmaster um, this year. As of Tuesday or Wednesday, that was confirmed. They're setting it up and figuring when they're going to put it together. Jeff Crump, from your experiences, we've laid it out. Uh, what is your take on the idea of, A, the United States Senate looking into this with a committee hearing and antitrust, and B, live, uh, or rather, the Department of Justice looking into this as a uh, antitrust issue? 
I think the federal government has a lot of things on their plate and managing the ticketing, private industry of ticketing is not their expertise and they got enough to do without meddling in that. I, I think Amy Klobuchar, I like Mike Lee, I know Mike Lee, um, probably one of the best constitutional scholars we've got, but the Senate doesn't know anything about selling tickets. What do they think they're going to do? They're going to get Live Nation to sell off Ticketmaster? Okay, then what? I mean, what changes? The Ticketmaster before it was owned by Live Nation was owned by several different individuals. It was started by um, Fred Rosen, who spun it off. It was publicly traded for a while. Um, Irving Azoff, the manager of the Eagles, bought Ticketmaster. He's the one that ultimately sold it to. He was on the board of directors of Live Nation. So it's a complicated thing. I don't think the Senate, just to pat themselves on the back, they got enough on their plate that they're, they need to be doing their own job without um, getting involved you know, in this. What about the Department opinion. of Justice? Well, I think they have their hands full as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. They, they certainly do. Is it a role of government issue for you, Jeff, that this is just not something they should be butting into? Well, let me flip the question to you, Jimmy. What industry has the government gotten in, involved with that they've improved? None whatsoever. <laughs> Maybe the military. <laughs> but yeah, That's no. Not, when, yeah. when the government gets involved, it becomes more corrupt, becomes more bogged down, and becomes more expensive. Yeah. So I don't know what the senators think they're going to accomplish, but I assure you oh. it's not going to be what they're claiming. They're going to get headlines. They're going to get on TV. They're going to get the notoriety. That's what's going to happen from this, Jeff Crump. Taylor Swift fans aren't going to care. But their parents might be like, oh, hey, we're glad you're doing. No, I agree with you. This is pointless, but it is. They're going to make it more expensive. They're going to make it more complicated, and it's going to be sluggish. The concert ticket sales and and doing a concert, setting it up, tearing it down, moving to another city the next day, it's a very precision 24-hour-a-day operation. It's not something the government does well with. I think that's so well put. And your expertise is very appreciated this evening, Jeff Crump. You've broke things down from a perspective nobody else can provide, having done all of those legs of the stool in the music business that you were talking about. And I uh, appreciate you joining us today. We will do something coming up uh, later this year. We always have our year in review of famous musicians and others that we've lost. I look forward to that conversation uh, as well. Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Merry Christmas to you too. And let me just let me just throw something out there. There's a lot of people in that industry that have done parts of what I've done. I'm not the Absolutely. only person out there, so I don't want to take any credit away from anybody listening who's involved in that business. It's a tough business, um, but there are a lot of people that make it work. So you are the only one I know who's been in all that capacity who I could get on the air. Jeff Crump, we got to run, brother. Merry right, Christmas. Thank, Thank you. you. Very thankful for Jeff Crump joining us on this, the day after Thanksgiving. Talk about an insightful conversation, isn't it? Good to be with you. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger in for Stefan Tubbs. We're going to take a break now on News Talk 710 KNUS. Run, run, Rudolph. Jimmy Sangenberger here with you in for Stefan Tubbs. Coming back with a cover of the Chuck Berry classic by the great Jimmy Buffett, another Jimmy, hey, a nice little harmonica bit in there, too, as we wrap up and wind down this, the second hour 
of the show on this, the night after Thanksgiving. What a great conversation with Jeff Crump. He's always fantastic, breaks things down well, and brings a wealth of experience. Gotta love it. Gotta love Harmonica in a Christmas tune, too. Alexa texting in, I always thought it was cool that Billy Joel would save seats in the front and fill them with people who were in the seats farthest away. He wanted true fans in the front seats rather than people who had money to buy expensive seats. How nice is that? Another great musician, I guarantee you, Jeff Crump worked with in some capacity as a promoter. Billy Joel, and surely Jimmy Buffett, too. I'm just guessing, because he worked with just about everybody. Look, I agree with Jeff, couldn't agree more. Congress needs to keep its grubby hands out of the ticket business. There's no good that the United States Senate can bring to that industry. Plain and simple. And he's right. What really is it going to change if it was a capacity issue for Ticketmaster? If anything, what you need to be looking at in general, and this is going to be a problem no matter what, who are the ticket resellers? What are the companies that are scalping tickets and selling those scalp tickets at premium prices that the musicians will never see a dime from? Because those tickets were purchased already. There's no value that they get. It's not like you go to a Taylor Swift concert after spending all this money at a scalping ticket reseller that she's getting money above what they bought it from. That's not happening. So, but but I don't know how you fix that because you look at it as an antitrust issue and there's a monopoly. It's not how this works. You listen to Jeff Crump and he's like, come on, this is ridiculous. And that's a guy who knows what he is talking about. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger filling in for Stefan Tubbs. Great to be with you this evening. Coming up in the next hour, we are going to have some fun with a special guest on the other side. Don't want to miss this. Coming up, Jimmy Sangenberger in for Stefan Tubbs. 303-696-1971 is our telephone number. We'll be opening up fully to the phones as well in the next hour. What are your thoughts on the whole Ticketmaster saga? Should Congress be getting involved or keep its grubby hands out of it? How about that truck or the uh, rail strike situation and Biden, Corrine Jean-Pierre, who's telling the truth? Stay with us. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.